Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Hi, everybody, and welcome back. Today, a discussion on the baseball card industry with John O'Dell, curator of history and research at the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum in Cooperstown. This discussion focuses on the seismic shift that happened in the spring and summer of 1981. Forty years ago, baseball card market exploded. Tops had a monopoly that was going on for decades in the industry, but it was busted, and Fleer and Donruss entered the market, and in fact, they flooded the market. On top of that, the baby boomer nostalgia took off, and it helped create the market for collectibles, like the 1952 Mickey Mantle rookie card, which is still one of the holy grails in the industry. But in 1981, card companies tried to artificially create nostalgia. Get those cards now, because in 30 years, they're going to be worth a fortune. Well, it didn't work out that way exactly, but the card industry did explode in 1981, and the changes that came about then helped drive the industry to new heights by the end of that decade. And now look where the industry has gone. It's absolutely crazy. The seeds were planted in 1981. In fact, I don't think it's outrageous to think of 1981 as the big bang for the baseball card collectibles market as we know it today. To help discuss the evolution of the card industry from the early 50s and 60s to what happened in 1981 to where it's all gone now, here is my conversation with John O'Dell of the Baseball Hall of Fame. John, the first thing I want to ask you is about how Topps kind of established their monopoly, so to speak, in mm-hmm. the 60s and 70s. Some other cards, card companies competed, and they had special sets, and you can get stuff in cereal boxes and things like that. But right. when you talk about baseball cards at that point in time, it was just Topps and Topps alone until it a was. lawsuit uh, in the mid to late 70s. Right, that's right. So um, Topps established their monopoly the old-fashioned way. They just beat the tar out of their uh, opponents, uh, and that was Bowman back in the 1950s. And there was a real bubblegum war that went along uh, between those two. Bowman actually uh, was uh, on the market first, tops the uh, the young upstart uh, company that came along. And uh, their first set, uh, if you've ever seen it, it's an early 50s set, 1951, if I recall correctly, um, and it was uh, it was just a pretty miserable set. Uh, it was more of a card game than it was card collecting. That off season was the year that um, Cy Berger uh, said, "I can do better," 
and really turned the entire baseball card world upside down with his terrific innovations. And although, interestingly, Topps did not have as many players under exclusive contract during any of this time as Bowman did, uh, fans just preferred the Topps designs. They were they looked better. They liked them more. Uh, Tops came out with bigger cards some years, and uh, even though you go back and you look at some of those Bowmans, you say, "How can how can you argue with what beauty that is?" The fifty fives really stand out. The color TV sets, right, right. <laughs> that's the, art. Yes, that's right. And, and yet. Tops with its uh, great marketing. I, I don't think you can credit the baseball gum yeah. <laughs> in, in the packets <laughs> yeah. for whatever reason. Tops ended up uh, buying out, uh, you know, drove Bowman into uh, bankruptcy, bought them out, bought the Bowman name so that they could later on resurrect that Bowman right. name, which they've done from the uh, from the mid fifties uh, through uh, the nineteen eighty season. Basically, had the market to themselves. With your correct, with a few exceptions, Fleer would come out with some old timers types things and um, or the cartoon um, uh, type cards that you might have seen of historic scenes and out of baseball. Um, the uh, the the uh, the 3D cards from Kellogg's, which were, you know, if you if you got to pay however much it was to buy a box of cereal in order to get your card, clearly you're buying the cereal and you're not buying the card. Correct. So uh, Topps uh, had the monopoly on cards with gum. And it, as it turned out uh, the following year, cards without gum. So you could, you could, you had to put something in your card package. You couldn't have gum and you couldn't not have nothing. So you, so okay. that was, uh, that Tops had kind of had it going both ways, um, but uh, that's that sort of sums up the, the the overall arc. So Fleer, as you mentioned, was one of these companies that come out with these special sets. They had a really popular one, I think, around 1963, uh, a good-looking card set, and they did um, World Series cards right. with stickers and things, and World Series facts on the back that are pretty popular. Uh, but they started the legal groundwork, I guess, right. in '75. How did that whole thing come about between and and in the I guess in the five years that it took to get this to get this through, what was going on that Fleer uh, was able to rid tops of this monopoly they had created? Fleer basically had been tr really trying for years to figure out how to break this monopoly. It was clear to Fleer. Uh, Interestingly enough, just as it was clear to Marvin Miller and the um, uh, baseball union that Topps was making money hand over fist with these baseball cards and no competition. There was clearly room for uh, more money to be made. Fleer worked on it uh, in, a, in a variety of ways. And uh, basically, it was uh, Topps's own and Cyberger's uh, own relentless pursuit of ball players and minor leaguers which sealed the deal so to speak to say you know you, you really you really do have a monopoly here and we're really going to break it down so that you know you you signed on for uh for five bucks as a minor leaguer you know with the the knowledge that if you ever made it tops was going to have your card 
And then once you were a major leaguer, every year you'd get your payment. And then every other year you would get a renewal, which was more payment. And so for another, you know, so th- it was a self, it was this perpetuating, not really self-perpetuating because Chops drove it with, with a lot of uh, time, effort and energy and Cy Berger did. Uh, but it was a, um, a mechanism that meant that there was no way that anybody could actually break into this field. Right, do you know, was this specifically all with individual players or did they have to yes. have some sort of agreement with the league as well? No. Or was, it was just player to play, uh, just player, player, player to player. player. And that was the, uh, that in, in many ways from, uh, Berger's perspective, that was the beauty of it. Uh, so that, uh, and he tops made a big deal about the fact that, um, you know, every rookie, gets the same as, um, you know, as Mickey Mantle mm-hmm. got. And so, uh, you know, we're, you're, we're treating you all equally. Uh, and so um, there, it kept tops costs low because they're, they're keeping it, you know, right at this, at this same level, everybody gets the, the same amount. And, uh, and if you didn't happen, of course, one of the neat things was if you didn't happen to need or want the cash that year, uh, tops would give you a little catalog and you could uh, you could pick from the catalog, sort of like an SNH green stamp kind of catalog, <laughs> uh, or allow the money to roll over for a few years. And uh, many uh, ball players uh, later on talked about getting their first riding lawnmower uh, through through the uh, catalog, uh, or uh, a stereo, or um, uh, patio uh, furniture. So it was, I mean, it was ser- some serious. Uh, prizes that you could uh get and you know and of course who knows exactly how much tops was was actually paying for these things uh but you know you were ordering it through the tops using tops money and uh and it came to you as free the lawsuit if i read right it took about five years for it to go to go through to the point where where fleer was able to start producing cards correct that's right that's right so uh yeah started in 75 uh finally in the summer of 80 was when uh, uh, Tops lost its final challenge, uh, you know, through obviously through numerous appeals, uh, and so given the uh, Fleer given the go ahead to go in '81, and so Donruss jumped on the on the bandwagon uh, at the same time. So um, it sounds like summer of '80 is a pretty decent lead-in, but. I remember being um, an 11-year-old card collector in the summer of 1981. And looking back on the sets that they produce now, we knew then what some of the issues were, but it seems fairly rushed. And the products that Fleer and Donruss put out in 1981 were very poor quality. I mean, yeah. I, would, I would think now that you know, you would find out maybe in January that you were allowed to produce cards, and this is why. But they had a lot bigger lead in here. Do you are you aware of what some of the problems were with Fleer and Donruss that caused that first set for each company to be so problematic? Yeah, I, a couple of things. Um, beginning with you, if you one after five years, you know you can't have anybody on retainer for five years. So after five years. You finally just now have found out that you can get these guys. It's not during spring training when right now when you can and you when you they have plenty of time to pose for photographs and that kind of thing. So you got to round up photographers. You've got to get photographs of all of these players. 
Uh, and then you've got to uh, you've got to design all the cards and uh, assemble all the backs. And I think that uh, and each one of these levels has to be done by hand because there's no computers yet. The logistics were just so huge that it, in a way uh, broke both uh, Fleer and Donruss in terms of the quality of, of, of what they were putting together. You know, and I just looking, thinking about it now as I'm chatting with you, Sweeney, I think that, you know, Tops had um, this whole long um, tradition and career. They knew all of their people. They, you know, everybody knew that what their stuff was. They knew what they needed to do. Uh, it was an assembly line. And so um, these other two companies had to create their own assembly lines with their own people, train their own people, assemble these things. And uh, I can tell you putting an exhibit together that if you don't have a lot of eyes looking at things and double checking and triple checking one another, uh, errors can slip through. And uh, I, I know that there's, um, uh, a, a, and you've seen it as well about people going, uh, oh, you know, I wonder if, if they were um, trying to capitalize. There's so many mistakes that, you know, are, were they trying to capitalize on the rarity sure. uh, market? And um, I saw uh, a statement once that said, uh, never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by stupidity. <laughs> and <laughs> I think that uh, in, in, in the, it, it, rather than using stupidity, I would say um, ignorance in this case, and uh, naivete and inexperience um, uh, combined to uh, to create uh, what is really by by any admission uh, not a very accurate say. and and the next two years b both both uh, companies really uh, upped their accuracy uh, even if Fleer really never did up its the quality of, of what it was doing. I mean, it remained uh, for, for the guys who worked really hard to, you know, years and years and years. I'm, I'm a little puzzled, uh, honestly, Sweeney, by the lack of, of um, creativity. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, like they, they seem to have put all their eggs in the, let's get this, get through this basket, you know, but no, with no plan for what was next. And, and the breakdowns were on so many different levels because you had cards that had a person's name, but the entirely wrong picture. You right. had cards that um, uh, had misspellings. You had out of focus shots. Um, yeah. And the backs of them were filled with errors, not just whether it was spelling or right. factual. Um, Mismatched it, from yeah. player to from front to back. Uh yeah, you, you're absolutely right. Uh, it was, it just, you know, looking back, it's just really pretty slipshod, isn't it? Yeah, and, and I know what you're saying about the the um, error market, because if I'm not mistaken, it was just two years earlier, um, Bump Wills is not a particularly valuable player um, as a card collector, but uh, they, I guess there was a trade that was going to go through that didn't go through, so he has two different versions of a 1979 card, and it's Build as an error when it was really just more of a somebody jumped the gun and then corrected it. But these yeah. that type of error became valuable. All of a sudden, I remember you know we're thinking we've got you know a, a cash box full of cards here because there's so many mistakes in them. Right. But the I guess part part of the um, 
part of it, uh, the equation has to, they have to be corrected and they have to right. be in small quantities. And I mean, they just mass produced a lot of bad right. they cards. Did. They did. Yeah. The, the demand was huge. And so, you know, so, uh, Fleer and Donruss were right. You know, um, there really was a bigger market out there um, for for more cards. I, it was kind of funny. You'd think that Tops would have been able to make more cards. I think Tops had maxed out the number of cards that it could sell, but there were people who wanted some change, who wanted some variety, who wanted a choice. They don't retain, you know, I think in collectors' uh, worlds, you know, the first edition of something is always quite valuable. The first editions of Fleer and Donruss cards don't really retain a lot of value, do they? No, they don't. They don't. I, I think that uh, looking back, uh, a couple of things uh, took place. One of them is that the 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 cachet that Tops had built up over forty years, and the uh, the dedication that its fans had to the Tops brand um, persevered. Uh, I think that um, it did not help uh, in ensuing decades when both Donruss and Fleer ended up leaving the market. Mm-hmm. A few years later, Upper Deck comes through with their breakthrough set. Yeah. If uh, if Fleer or Donruss had come through with that in 1981, that kind of revolutionary thing where you had just amazingly great imagery. You had the bright white cardboard. You weren't using, you know, you know, second rate chipboard. Um, I think that, that they might have had something, but they, they came out with a, with a second rate product, um, that, uh, really just did not capture the imagination really very much. It just didn't fly in the way that they ultimately long-term the way that they hoped it would. I'm going to get to the upper deck and that part of the market again in a little bit. Uh, but a couple more things about this first set in 81. I think yeah. it happened a couple of times uh, in the 81 set, if I'm not mistaken. But one of the great things, and this could just be nitpicking. I don't know if it's a thing uh, that you recognize or, or, or found problematic. Um, the, the type on the back, besides being uh, many times inaccurate, one of the great things that Topps had were when you had players that had been in the league for 15 or 20 years, you had their entire statistical career on the back. Yeah. Flair and Donruss, in an effort to get other things on the back, would shrink a player's down, career down to, these, this is what he did the last five years of his career. And yeah. I know as a, as a young fan that turned me off. I don't know, you know what you thought of that or know um, anything about that particular part of the, the, the card. Right. I, I don't know a lot about that particular part of the card, but I, uh, I am aware that Fleer uh, uh, and Donald are trying to do some different things with the backs of their cards. And yes, you're absolutely right. When you, especially when you take a look at like a, a Nolan Ryan, yeah. uh, there's just, you know, or Johnny Bench, there's just no room for anything <laughs> else besides their careers right. on the right. back. Um, and, and I would say that that is a, um, you know, and, and tops themselves, experimented over the years as you're aware with that it's like this is what they did last year here's what their career is so then you could put pardon me you could put a little cartoon there Mm -hmm. that talks about hunting and fishing or whatever um and uh you'd have a little bit of more uh breathing space to have uh have information but um you know the tops really had gotten that that back locked down 
And it wasn't until a little bit later on, uh, SCORE, I know, ended up having uh, photos on the back and a few others. You know, when you started making both front and back a little bit more dynamic. It's, um, it's funny when you talk about the cartoonish things. I'm, I'm, I think 77 was probably the last year the Tops really had little cartoon factoids uh, okay. on the back of their cards. And then it just started to be all statistical stuff. Um, right. And, um, yeah, they, that that was seemed to be one of the – kind of unique fun things about the cards that maybe maybe that's what made it seem like a childlike endeavor to a lot of people because it had these cartoon things on the back well i think you're right and and remembering really honestly that that's who the audience was um originally and so uh i think that i think it makes some sense and uh i think that uh, that tops uh, accurately figured out who their audience uh who their audience was and and that that was uh that was a helpful thing John, my own recollection of this 1981 card war is amplified by the fact that there was a baseball strike in that summer that wiped out several weeks, uh, basically uh, two months, basically, from uh, early June to early August. And if you were of a baseball crazy age like I was, if you were a baseball fan like many people were, you didn't have anything else to do except collect more cards and dive into these. Um, I'm wondering if that had any sort of an impact on, on kind of what we're talking about here as, you know, as historically or as a, as a market, as, as what impact the strike had on how this particular year of card collecting is viewed. So yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, and all I can think of is that it must have enhanced it a little bit uh, in a way that was qualitatively different from 1994, 95. Mm-hmm. And uh, perhaps it's because they did come back, uh, you know, and you started yeah. off the season fresh and uh, you know, you had all of a sudden, once again, you had how many teams were there then? 26, 28, 28 teams, 28 teams in first place again. Right. right. Uh, so, you know, ev- everything was, uh, everything was new. Um, but, you know, it, it certainly didn't, uh, affect it negatively. Uh, and I think the proof of that is that everybody came back out with the 1982s and the 83s and each successive year in the 1980s and into the 1990s, you'd see more and more makers coming out and then they'd come out with their sub brands and their premiums and their, you know, uh, divvying up the markets and finding micro markets, uh, because some demand is there. Demand is there, you know, and, and, you know, for for basic cards, uh, but even more for the, uh, it's becoming clearer for the more premium cards. When Upper Deck comes out, pricing them at a dollar a pack, uh, the astronomical price of a dollar a pack. Clearly, eighty one has not damaged the card market the way that ninety four would. This is um, there's a tremendous shift between the start of the 80s and the end of the 80s. Upper Deck comes in, and I, there are a lot of factors here, I think, that seem to go into it. One, obviously, the uh, you know the fact that Topps lost its monopoly and other people could start getting into this game. The technology started to improve between yeah. photographs and, and uh, starting to be able to, I, I think, use greater technology to actually create the card. Plus, the nostalgia market had fully kicked yes. in. The Absolutely. Mickey Mantle card... Uh, the 52 Manta, which we very recently saw uh, sold for a record price again, right? Right. Uh, that, to my knowledge, that the knowledge of that card, the scarcity and the value of that card, 
really started in the early 80s as well. So all of these factors really helped kick card collecting into a whole new era that I don't know anybody really saw coming, did they? I think that uh, there were a lot of, of card collectors. I think that uh, the some of the first uh, in-trade magazine reporting like uh, Sports Collectors Digest and such were calling out in the late, even in the late 70s, that, hey, there's some weird, weird, interesting things that are going on. That not only is this uh, Hannes Wagner card advancing, mm -hmm. but so too is the Mickey Mantle card, which at that time, you know, just think about it, were, was only 30 years yes, old. Yes, I think about that all yeah, the time. Oh, holy cow, yeah, uh -huh. it's only 30 years old, um, which, you know, you know, now, you know, you and I are both more than 30 years old. So it yeah. seems like Some, it was, 1990, you know, you know, Ken Griffey Jr. is nice, but just doesn't seem to have the same effect right. of, of what we're talking about. Right. Uh, I, I had a, uh, the chance to talk with um, uh, a, a longtime photographer, uh, tops photographer, and I'm going to remember his name in a minute after we chat. Anyway, uh, he uh, said that, you know, it really wasn't until the uh, – the upper deck cards came out that the that the images on the cards came anywhere near to the quality of the images that the card companies had in the in the uh, uh, transparencies the color um, slide film that they were getting from their uh, from their photographers so there was clearly a very big gap that uh, in quality that could be made up even just with the materials that they had on hand. And then, yes, you know, other elements of the production, which got better, uh, but there, there was uh, a lot of inefficiencies in the system that could be uh, corrected for, and you could get a better product to start with. And I had kind of... Doug McWilliams. I knew I'd remember him. I'm sorry, what's his name? D Doug, Doug okay. McWilliams, uh, a famous uh, tops uh, card photographer. Go ahead. There, you made reference to this, and my experience as a collector had gone. I was older, working, and uh, the idea of collecting was no longer there in 94, 95. Um, that strike had a certain impact on the collecting market? Yeah, that actually marked the um, basically a bust for the collecting market. All of a sudden, people in the uh, collectors in the 1980s increasingly and then into the 90s having seen what 1950s cards had done decided if i had bought and saved a set of 1952 tops and kept them pristine and now sold them uh here it is at that point say uh 40 years later i would make a killing therefore if i buy a set right now and hold on to it i will be able to make a killing uh, the problem was that everybody got the same idea at the very same time. And they all bought, you know, the sleeves and you could buy the whole set, uh, which was something that you really couldn't do back in the 1950s. At least nobody knew how to do it. I, I suppose that if you'd, if you'd contacted the company and said, hey, I'd like to buy a whole set, uh, you, you'd have gotten a runaround and you probably, but you could probably send a money order and they'd have done it. Uh, but there was, you know, the way to do, you, the way you got your set was, you went down to the to the corner uh, grocery store, the, the corner liquor store, the corner bodega, whatever you had in your hometown, and you know you paid for them at a penny or nickel a pop. Um, and so, uh, but you know, people just bought 
and bought and bought and stored and stored and stored. And then it became clear in the, uh, in, with the 1994 strike that um, there had just been too much had been produced. And, uh, and the love of baseball, the love for baseball took a terrific, terrific hit than when they canceled the World Series and people just said, that's what you think of me. Yeah. That's that's how you think of me, owners and baseball players. I don't care anything more about you. I'm not buying any more of your stuff. And uh, Sweeney, one thing that one thing that I have found really interesting, the Hall of Fame was uh, uh, itself in the early '90s um, was uh, approached and and got over four hundred thousand people coming per year uh, to to Cooperstown. Uh, after 1990 uh, and 1994, we were poised to set a brand new record. Uh, after that, it dropped down to 300,000, and that's where it's been ever since. Really? Really. Wow. It so, seems, and, and it's funny, the way you describe it, I had this written down earlier, but the way you describe the way that, that market shaped up, uh, pure nostalgia for nostalgia's sake was gone. It seems that pure 80s greed kind of killed it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're exactly right. It, it became, they became a, a, a commodity. Uh, they became uh, something that you purchased as, uh, as an investment. Um, and, uh, but that had, it had no intrinsic value. And because it was mass marketed, everybody had the same thing you did. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's not like you could say, well, um, you know, a painting, uh, you know, has no intrinsic value. It's it's its value is all in in what you imbue it with, with by looking at it, and you decide, hey, I like it and I love it and I think it's beautiful. And if I can convince you, Sweeney, that it's also beautiful, you might think that it's worth enough to to purchase it from me. But if you if we both have the same thing and it's been mass produced and everybody that we know has got the same thing, and the only difference is that mine has a nick on one corner and yours is a little better centered. What's the difference? Yeah. I, I'm curious where where you think that the hobby has gone now. It's it's a digital hobby now that Topps has created. Um, the actual cardboard images and the cardboard things you hold in your hand, it's, it's very antiquated. But I feel like it's kind of muddied what we think of. I mean, I, and I know that, Technology and the access to games has changed everything. Right. But for a lot of people, what you had, like the, if I look at a 1962 Sandy Koufax that is hanging on my wall, you know, that might be the only time in 1962 I get to see Sandy Koufax at all. You know, I'm, I may right. not get to see him pitch at, at all in person or on TV. I'm not yes. going to get to see him. Um, this is my one image. I know what... Uh, a Hank Aaron card looks like, a Roberto Clemente card looks like. I have those images. I have no idea what a Mike Trout baseball card looks like, even though there's probably uh, dozens of them. I wonder where you think that we've kind of shifted now in terms yeah. of what I'm describing. Yeah, so, uh, uh, Sweeney, you're absolutely right. And one of the things that is that uh, drove the passion for baseball cards for so long was that uh, not only was it your time to see these players up close, but you got to see good images of them. 
uh, think for a moment about how players look, uh, even if it's a head and shoulder shot in the newspaper with 75 DPI or whatever it is. Uh, but it's all black and white in the newspaper. Uh, even Sports Illustrated was almost all black and white uh, all the way up until, let's say, relatively recently. You know, we were excluded. You know, throughout the 50s and 60s, it was all black and white. Okay. Into the 70s, it was black and white. You know, there, you might have a um, a couple of images, but you know, you didn't have. Not every photograph was in color. And so, you know, here was a chance to see it in color, uh, up close, personal. You had uh, this tangible element. You had, you, there was no baseball encyclopedia yet. So, you know, here were the stats yeah. for your guys. And as you pointed out, it's their lifetime stats for every single year. So you can see how, you know, this guy is going up and, oh, look, th this, this fellow looks like he may, this, uh, you know, he may be something really good uh, or, you know, he may flame out. You, you know, you just don't know. But, uh, you know, you can you can track his progress over the years as you're collecting, you know, uh, during your, your prime collecting years and everybody had their prime collecting years. Um, but, uh, yes, now uh, there are you know so many things that are going on. One of them is, you know, you have uh, the, the entire baseball encyclopedia or total baseball in your pocket whenever yeah. you want with mm -hmm. baseballreference.com. You've got uh, you've got videos of all these Guys, you can watch every single game uh, instead of just having one game in black and white per week. And half the time it's the Yankees, yeah. whether you like it or not. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, now you can see, you know, I'm an Orioles fan. I can I can watch 162 Orioles games if I feel the need to just, you know, punish myself. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, you know, th those are all, and you can see it in color and you can see it in HD and, and all of these things that you just didn't have uh, back at that time. So now, yes, you've got the digital imagery that uh, tops has, you can have virtual cards that you can keep on your, they, they are making cards. Um, you know, they've created now the, um, the manufactured scarcity Cards and you're you're probably familiar with this too. That where there'll be, um, you know, here's the here's the base card, but then they have one with a special finish that's got that that's red. And there there's a you know, fifty of those. And here's a special finish that's blue. And there's twenty of those. And if you know, and here's a special finish that's uh, multicolor. And there's only one of those. And if you get that one, and it's in great shape, then that's the Mike Trout card that is worth really a whole lot of money. Um, and so uh, because it used to be that, uh, you know, scarcity drives the market or at least drives the market up. Mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. so uh, baseball figured out a way or baseball card manufacturers figured out a way to create scarcity in their baseball cards. And the result is that you buy a, a set of cards and, you know, you quickly flip through them. And if you're an investor, you throw away four of the five cards that you've just bought for $3 and you keep the one card, which is, you know, a little bit special. And, uh, and then you go out and resell that and to try to recoup what you've just, you know, what you've just paid. It's a, a very different kind of, uh, kind of experience now than the grassroots, uh, baseball cards for which there uh, apparently is almost no market any longer because there's no need for it. 
like so many things, the Hall of Fame does a wonderful job of, of collecting the artifacts from different generations and putting together wonderful displays that kind of trace the history of it. And there's certainly baseball cards um, part of that at the at the museum. What can you tell fans about some of the um, some of the card exhibits and some of the features that you have up there at the museum right now? Uh, Sweeney, thanks for the opportunity to talk a little bit about uh, uh, Shoebox Treasures, which is the name of our new uh, baseball card exhibit. It was a, a, a labor of love uh, that we put together. Um, you uh, may remember that a number of years ago, we had uh, really just a display of baseball cards. If mm-hmm. you came up to the Hall of Fame back in the uh, you know 90s and early 2000s uh, and before that, you know, it was the, basically a wall of cards. And uh, what we wanted to do was we took ended up taking that down because of some renovations. And we got, quite frankly, we got a lot of flack about that. And the fans said, we, we want <laughs> baseball cards. They're, they're, they're important to us. And they articulate many, many fans articulated how important baseball cards had been in the development of their love for the game. And so we said, okay, we have to honor that. We want to recognize that. And so we're going to create, but we're going to do something more than uh, just put another wall of baseball cards up. And so we've created uh, this exhibit, base, uh, Shoebox Treasures, which traces the, the history of the development of the card, but also the history of collecting and the connection between the card and the player and the fan and the collector and uh, trying to make it just a, a lot more immersive and a lot more engaging. Um, you get at the very end the opportunity to take a digital photo of yourself, uh, which then gives you a handful of cards that gets mailed straight to your uh, to your telephone. Uh, so there's a, an interactive element, uh, computer interactive element that's a part of that. Uh, but we um, uh, we really went through beginning with those old 19th century cards, which is really when baseball cards began, uh, and continuing. And and we have a, a uh, an area called the cards your mother threw away, uh, <laughs> yeah. which contains even up to this very year in uh, in baseball cards, uh, uh, but samples of baseball cards from the very beginning all the way up until today. How did and you so end you up can, with the cards that everybody's mother threw away? That's fantastic. They, they, they actually mailed them to the Hall of Fame. It was, it was a conspiracy. Um, we, we also have uh, a couple of things that we have a, a couple of um, special exhibits every year. Uh, this year, uh, we have um, uh, one drawer of, of our cards, which is a first generation of black baseball stars. Uh, in the that had just had broken into the now desegregated white major leagues, and so these are that that first uh, that first wave of of great black ball players uh, from from Jackie Robinson um, through Willie Mays and Hank Aaron and Roberto Clemente, uh, Minnie Mignoso, uh, all of these great um, uh, ball players who uh, we recognize now were major league talents being kept down in the minor leagues, you know, in the Negro leagues. And so, uh, so we, we brought all of them up. We have their, their, uh, their rookie cards uh, up there. Um, and then we also have another, we were talking about the tops art. We also have another um, uh, case of uh, uh, original tops cartoons uh, from, from the 1960s and seventies together with some of the, uh, uh, 
baseball cards that they created the art for. So you can see what the original art was, which was actually uh, a, a pretty big uh, panel that was then shrunk down to about you know a fifth of its size. And you can see right next to them. So you, uh, wow. the, the opportunity to, um, to, to see this production element that you and I were just talking about, it was a uh, uh, loan to us by uh, a great fan who came and saw the exhibit and said, Hey, I've got this original artwork. Would you be interested in showing it? It's that like, sounds fantastic. Are you kidding me? Yes, yes. We, we were actually looking for some of this original art to be able to put on exhibit, and we just did not have any. And so he, then we put the exhibit out, and somebody comes up and says, "Hey, I'd like to. Uh, I'd like to lend you some art." So it's it's up there now. And John, just um, to educate fans right now, what can you tell fans about what they what they need to know about visiting the Hall of Fame in this particular point in time? Uh, you can buy your tickets ahead of time. They're timed tickets. You come in. You don't have to wait in a long, long line. Uh, you'll wear your mask while you're inside the the museum, and you can just enjoy your your visit to Cooperstown. Um, but all you have to do is just go to our website, and you'll see whatever the current uh, restrictions are on the day that you want to show up. And uh, you know, sometime in the future, people will listen to this and go, I don't even know what those uh, two <laughs> geezers are talking about. Yeah. Uh, so um, it's going to, uh, so, but yes, j- just go to the website, go to the baseball hall of fame, uh, baseballhall.org, and you'll see how to uh, protect yourself and how to maximize your, uh, your experience at the baseball hall of fame. And keep in mind that visitors are not allowed for the induction ceremony this summer, which will feature Derek Jeter. And there are usually tens of thousands of people that show up on induction weekend. It is a private ceremony this year that will be televised. So that part of the Hall of Fame is uh, is not accessible to fans. But the Hall of Fame itself, the museum itself, is still a wonderful place to visit. And as John told you, there are uh, ways to uh, go about it right now and still enjoy everything that you get to enjoy inside the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. My thanks to John O'Dell, the Curator of History and Research at the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum in Cooperstown, New York. If you're new to 30 with Murdy, please check out our archive at radio.com, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. You'll, you can hear recent conversations like the ones I had with Eric Kratz, the recently retired catcher on his long journey through professional baseball, or Jack Aker, who had a Forrest Gump-like existence during his tenure playing career in the 1960s and 70s, a wonderful chat I had with him. Please make sure to check out our archive, hit subscribe and review, and make sure you check out the WFAN Baseball Insiders on your podcast platforms. You can subscribe there and get my Yankees reports and Ed Coleman's Mets reports delivered to you daily. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sweeney Murdy. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. 
I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.